The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Rainmaker FM. Welcome back to a special edition of The Writer Files called The Writer's Brain. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, and this is a guest series with neuroscientist Michael Gribko, where we dig into a phenomenon known as imposter syndrome, an experience many writers struggle with. The experience known as imposter syndrome has been recognized in over 70% of the population across a wide range of demographics. Everyone from best-selling authors, A-list celebrities, and even genius-level scientists have all admitted to feeling a kind of isolation from not wanting to be outed as a quote-unquote fraud, even though they're far from it. And it's not just limited to high achievers. It's been found in men and women across a wide range of groups, including those about to launch a new creative project or career, teachers, students, entrepreneurs, and many others. Across all demographics, success tends to create an even deeper sense of the imposter experience, and although not considered a clinical psychological syndrome, the effects can be debilitating to writers at any level of experience or professional training. These feelings of self-doubt can snowball if not addressed, and leave you with a sinking depression, anxiety, and a sense of dread at taking on new or challenging tasks. Luckily, research scientist Michael Gribko returned to the podcast to help me find some answers about the origins of anxiety in the human brain and how to address the imposter experience from both a scientific and a layperson's perspective. If you've missed previous episodes of The Writer's Brain, you can find them all in the show notes, in the archives at writerfiles.fm, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you tune in. In part one of this file, Michael and I discuss how neuroscience can find a lens to look at imposter syndrome, why some doubt and anxiety is good for you, the problem with too much fear and the avoidance response, why the imposter phenomenon and writer's block are very similar, and how your whole brain plays a role in your fear of the blank page. The Writer Files is brought to you by the all-new Studio Press Sites, a turnkey solution that combines the ease of an all-in-one website builder with the flexible power of WordPress. It's perfect for authors, bloggers, podcasters, and affiliate marketers, as well as those selling physical products, digital downloads, and membership programs. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 200,000 website owners trust StudioPress. Go to rainmaker.fm slash studiopress now. That's rainmaker.fm slash studiopress. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. All right. 
Welcome back to another special edition of The Writer Files. This is The Writer's Brain Imposter Syndrome Edition, and I am joined today by neuroscientist Michael Gribko. Mike, thanks so much for hopping on the show to do this today. Oh, thanks for having me back. I always enjoy these. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, we have a lot of fun doing these, and uh, this is rare for us actually today because we are recording in the studio. So typically, Michael has called in from uh, Washington, the Washington area in right. Seattle, and uh, recently moved back to uh, the Denver area. So welcome back to Colorado, pal. Thank you. It's nice to be a little closer this time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is uh, a little different is, environment for us. Right. This is new for us. Uh, sitting here face to face. Um, I'm going to try not to make eye contact because that's creepy, right? Yeah. Yeah. That might be too much for this first in-person podcast <laughs> no, recording. I, I'm kidding. Of course, I've known Michael forever. Um, and it is a pleasure to have you here. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about imposter syndrome All right. and specifically, I think for the writer files audience, we can kind of get into a little bit on maybe why we're talking about this. And, um, it's probably, pertinent to mention that the imposter syndrome as kind of uh, defined by psychology is not really a syndrome per se. It's technically been reclassified as uh, the imposter phenomenon or right. the imposter experience. So it's not uh, something psychologists can necessarily quantify. Right. Uh, and it has been, however, researched in set like 70 to 80% of the population. So a lot of writers uh, specifically probably have experienced at one time or another this experience of, uh, and I'll quote, I'll just quote Wikipedia here. It's a concept describing individuals who are marked by an inability to internalize their accomplishments and a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. So right. I actually had written about this for copy blogger and we can talk a little bit more specifically about that article, but I had written about it recently. I thought bringing Mike on to discuss it a little bit further in, in specifically how it applies to writers. I think just to start out high achievers in a lot of different fields have described this feeling yes. uh, anywhere from Genius level scientists. I'm talking about yeah. Einstein specifically, who had talked about feeling this feeling late in his career as if he was kind of a failure, which yep. is uh, laughable. A lot of scientists, I think, have yeah, gone through this. Right. And you, you, before a big talk, before submitting a paper. Yeah. 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 This feeling of kind of being, uh, it's a feeling of self doubt, crushing self doubt. It's, it's, it comes with some kind of depression mm -hmm. um, and a feeling of, of dread. Yeah. And I know I have experienced it in the past. Uh, Award-winning actors have talked about having it, uh, specifically Jodie Foster, Natalie Portman, Denzel Washington, and then, of course, famous authors, including Neil Gaiman. Um, I talked personally with Kevin Kelly about having this feeling of, of not really being <laughs> a great writer. He's the founder of Wired Magazine and a, a fantastic uh, journalist. But, yeah, a lot of high achievers have... have talked about having this feeling, but also it's not limited to high achievers, I think was the point right. that I'm trying to get to. Yeah. A lot of people experience this, right? Yeah. So it's been studied in a wide range of groups, including of course, uh, writers who are just starting out on a new project, um, teachers, students, entrepreneurs, 
Yeah, scientists at all levels. I think you have grad students too, yeah. postdocs, professors. So as you're kind of, I think, moving in whatever direction you're moving at, whatever level you are in, in your career or um, in your learning, probably everybody runs up against it at some point, right? Yeah. And that's not unusual. Yeah, I don't think. No. We start thinking about it, like there is some some doubt in our abilities is important yeah. um, too much. If it starts inhibiting our ability to perform a task, then it becomes a problem. That's right. That's right. So I think specifically for writers, it's interesting because, you know, so many writers are either uh, contractors or, you know, freelancers and uh, are having to write about subjects that they might not be specifically, you know, innately trained in um, or have that kind of what you mentioned tacit knowledge. Right. Uh, so a lot of writers are probably running up against this. Not only are, are freelancers running up against this, you know, just from kind of that, uh, you know, the, the feeling of maybe not knowing everything there yeah, is to know about enough. a subject, but also <laughs> so many writers are also entrepreneurs and they're trying to figure out ways to, um, you know, con consistently make a living and so on and so forth. So anyway, Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime that's patreon.com slash the writer files help us start something cool and special keep calm and write on let's let's move on and talk about specifically kind of you know how neuroscience can look at an issue at a phenomenon yeah. like the imposter experience right and how you know how we can get a better feeling of from your uh neuroscience perspective you know, what maybe what yeah, we can, how we can look at it and maybe what we can do about it. Right. Um, so, you, are, you know, we already talked about this and, you know, that imposter syndrome really isn't recognized as a disorder. 
So that was one of the difficulties for me when I started to think about imposter syndrome. Um, therefore, you know, in my field, there's very little information about what's going on at the neuronal level with individuals experiencing, experiencing imposter syndrome. And that's what I do. I'm a neuroscientist and I look at things that are going on at the cellular circuit level of the brain. So due to this, there's very little, you know, re, very few research articles out there that I could turn to and research this. Um, so I kind of asked, well, does imposter syndrome seem like any other behaviors that are being researched in neuroscience? Right. And this led me to think about imposter syndrome as an anxiety issue. And there's plenty of research out there that has been done and is currently being done on the topic of anxiety. And we talked about this before, um, anxiety kind of being thought of as an emotional state. So on previous podcasts, we talked a lot about relationships between our emotional state and neuronal activity. Yeah. So for one, you know, fake news on our last <laughs> episode, you know, we talked about how hot button topics create this emotional response and that makes it hard for us to be objective when we're exposed to new facts on Absolutely. those topics. Yeah. Um, we also talked about it on our creativity episode, kind of how eliciting the appropriate emotional, um, context or emotional response can increase our ability to remember things and consolidate memories. That's right. Um, and I, I, by the way, I will link, uh, in the show notes to both, uh, my discussion with Michael about fake news and creativity as well. Yeah. And then I think, um, what's really important for this episode is what we talked about during writer's block. Um, and I think there may be a component to imposter syndrome to writer's block. That seems like there's a connection there. Absolutely. And, you know, this may we'll get in a little later, but we talked about how an emotional state can influence how we recall memories and then use that information to dictate our actions. So, yeah, I think that'll be really relevant to today's conversation. Yeah. And, and I had recently revisited the writer's block episode to write something again for copy blogger about writer's block and neuroscience. And I think what's interesting specifically about kind of, you know, your brain health and, and, and your emotional state as it, as it applies to writing is that, you know, to, to be able to, to actually write something that's, you know, considered uh, creative or useful, yep. um, you know, requires, you know, a, a training of millions of different neuronal activities over years and years and years, right? You don't, right. you don't come out of the womb knowing how to write. Right. right. It, it takes practice. It and does. Creative, creativity is something we can work on and get better. I think using the metaphor or, or the idea of the writer as athlete devalues the processes in our brain that we use to actually write. Because I think when I was looking at it, you know, just, uh, again, from an outside perspective and kind of looking at the neuroscience behind it, I realized that, you know, the 86 billion neuronal cells that we <laughs> right, right. use on a daily basis, or at least over our lifetime, the number of muscles that are required to write are like 20, yeah. right. To pick up a pen and like scribble something on a piece the of paper. The brain is much more complex than <laughs> it's a little it's, bit different. Yeah. The muscular system say yeah. than uh, training for, um, you know, a race or something to that effect. Granted, you know, we have talked about, and I'll link to that great article again about 
how writers have been compared to pro athletes. Um, that's a little bit hard to <laughs> tie, tie in because I know it's, it's uh, hard to get a writer into an MRI or an fMRI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I'm kind of straying from the point, but I think interesting to go back to writer's block and um, talk a little bit just about the importance of what's happening here. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, kind of how that, how that ties into imposter's experience. So. Right. Right. I think that's the, you know, that's the anxiety. And if you think about writer's block and imposter syndrome, you start doubting. If we start doubting, you know, can I do this? There's going to be some anxiety and that's going to make it more difficult for us to do the task we're trying to do. Right. Um, and anxiety is a, a, a weird state and a very complex emotion. There's a lot of brain areas involved and it's a balance issue. Um, some anxiety is good. The right amount too much is really bad. So basically anxiety sort of arises when there's a conflict and we're kind of constantly dealing with conflicts. A lot of them we don't even recognize. A lot of times our brain is dealing with conflicts and it just seems like an everyday task. And this is because we're constantly weighing our options. Um, so if we're thinking about performing a task, sort of ask ourselves, or our brain is processing information in a way that's kind of asking, is the possible reward we're presented with, or possibly presented with, worth the energy it will expand to attain it? And this includes, you know, accounting for threats, predation, if you're a, a rodent or something. So real threats or even perceived threats. So anxiety kind of plays an important role in our well-being. Because the right amount of anxiety is kind of causes us to take pause. Um, more calculating. Right. Um, you don't rush into a system or a situation that may be um, hazardous. You know, in my field, scientists don't just run an experiment, get results, and say, Hey, if it's my theory, we run control experiments, make sure the parameters we were testing were actually affected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, writers, you know, produce several editions, you know, not just one draft of something. That's right. Um, journalists check sources. Um, and that's partly because of anxiety. Anxiety is saying, Hey, be cautious, be careful. Anxiety is causing that response. But as anxiety increases, neuronal function starts to change a lot. And we process information differently. So we, as anxiety increases, we, be, we begin to see the shift in neuronal activity away from areas associated with kind of objective and flexible thought to areas associated with more impulsive and reflexive responses. Hmm. And this makes a lot of sense. Because if during a real stressful situa situation, we're not going to have a lot of time to gather a bunch of information weigh all of our options before we choose an appropriate action, course of action. So for example, you know, if our life or well-being is threatened, you just want to react. If there's a imminent threat, if you sit there and weigh all your options, you're just not going to have the time, you know? Right, right. So an anxiety disorder is when sort of we have this avoidance response to a situation that isn't proportional to the threat or the situation at hand. Mm -hmm. So during um, a situation where our anxiety level should cause us to be more thorough or take more care, 
Instead, it causes us to respond as if there is a major threat. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you, <laughs> I think I read recently that like neurotic people live longer. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's the that ties in. constantly avoiding threats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think writers are generally kind of neurotic. Um, I mean, I put myself in that category. I'm not speaking for you, <laughs> listener, or you, Michael. But you do a lot of writing in your in your field, and uh, um, sure, yeah, writing is a big part of science. It's much different, you know. It's very, yeah, it's technical writing usually, yeah. and seems kind of dry. There's not a lot of prose, and you know, it's not poetry. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and it's just get the facts out there and lay them out in a logical order. Um, but there are some opportunities to be a little more creative during discussions and think about the broader implications of our research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can't help but harp on writer's block a little bit only because that's the two seem kind of intertwined. Absolutely. Um, only because they're a, they're hard to define, you know, um, right. writers go back and forth and I'm, I've spoken with many, many professional writers who, do, you know, don't believe in writer's block, mm -hmm. um, or don't think it's a thing. And then of course there are, there's the camp that definitely believes in it. Um, that, you know, almost thinks it's like a supernatural force right, right, or something right. like that. Um, it's a wide but, spectrum there. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think it is interesting with our new understanding of how all these neuronal processes work, uh, in our brains and to go back to kind of the complexity of it, why it makes sense that, so many of us would experience the imposter phenomenon right. and why it's so hard to define much right. like writer's block. Well, that's because it, it is, as I was just talking, you know, there's different levels of anxiety. Some is good too much in the situation is bad. So yeah, it's not surprising that like 70% of the population maybe would experience this at some time because some level of doubt is good. Yeah. So, you know, I think it would be a little weird. I think if you have someone, who's about to give a big talk in front of a thousand people who's not going to be nervous. Right? Absolutely. You know, you're going to be doubting is this, you know, and that's going to help that doubt should drive you to do a more thorough job. If you get to the point where you completely fumble the speech or you can't even get on stage, then there's a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, going back to writer's block, I think there are a lot of similarities and, um, you know, and that's one of the things, you know, maybe we can revisit that what we talk about during writer's block Absolutely. and the neuronal processes that were going on there. Um, so back to, you know, there's several areas in the brain that are associated with anxiety. And then again, just to reiterate this, you know, during extreme bouts of anxiety, changes in neuronal activity can be widespread and really striking. And the area, one of the areas we kind of honed in on, honed in on during writer's block was um, the striatum. And this is um, actually, this is the area of the brain I'm studying now in Colorado and looking at this phenomenon at the cellular level. And the striatum is really key in this approach and avoidance behavior, um, weighing our options and deciding, is this goal, is something I wanna pursue or not? Or is there a threat? Is it gonna take too much energy? And I think this is a, a brain area that's really relevant to anxiety. So what's interesting in the striatum is that there's sort of these neurons that fire at a basal level pretty regularly, constantly, you know, and if an individual receives a reward, there's a increase in the activity. If the reward 
is not substantial enough, less than what the individual is expecting, or if there's punishment, then the neuron, the basal neuronal level falls and there's a decrease in activity. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting too about this and what was relevant in writer's block and I think what's relevant to imposter phenomenon as well is that over time, if we start to associate something, some sense, other sensory information with the reward or the punishment, the neuronal activity can start to change before we even have experienced the reward or punishment. Mm. This means, you know, our neuronal activity starts to change based on our perceived outcome of a situation. And this can affect, dictate the action we take. Right. Um, so that's, I think, you know, it seems very relevant to imposter syndrome and writer's block. Absolutely. Now, anxiety, as I said, you know, it's very widespread and there's several brain areas involved. So there's more than just that going on. And extreme bouts of anxiety, I think, can sort of spread throughout the whole brain, possibly. Um, we can see changes in activity across several areas. Um, I think another area that we should talk about with anxiety um, is the amygdala. Um, so this is an area that has been implicated in fear response and something that a lot of people probably have heard of, kind of responsible for our flight or fight response. Um, fight or flight. Fight or flight. Thank you. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so, you know, flight just, or fight is different. Know. That's what you have. That's what you experience at the airport. <laughs> when you, TSA agent when, gets when your there. flight is delayed. <laughs> uh, yeah. TSA agent takes your <laughs> bottle of hand sanitizer. That's right. I think I, <laughs> I hope I haven't dis derailed your thinking here, but. Oh, geez. But the activity in the amygdala is very striking and it's there's disruptions here can almost lead to a complete extinction of certain types of fear responses. This is interesting. Uh, um, so a guy I used to work with, um, who's in the department at the university of Washington, which I just moved from this guy, Gene Sok Kim researched the amygdala and he, he used rats. He put them in this open field and have them forage for food. And then, he released what he called the Robogator. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I know. And it looks funny. There are videos out there of this. And it's, uh, it's like a Lego set or something. And it's a little. Oh, cool. Uh, looks like a kind of alligator dragon thing. I'll have to find and this it, video for it, you. It, it rolls into the arena. And the rats perceive this as a threat. And they run away. They have this little panic room <laughs> they can go to. And they stop foraging. <laughs> so this is exactly the behavior you're talking about. Okay. The, the, the animals see the threat, so it's like, hey, I'm hungry, I want food, but the threat's too great, I'm going to get out of here. Okay. What's really interesting is when he disrupts activity in the amygdala, behavior changes completely. The animals go get the food. In a few instances, they'll even go and explore the robogator. Hmm. And they'll start climbing, a few rats even start climbing on it, treating it like a jungle gym. Hmm. That's um, cool. Yeah. It doesn't hurt the rats. No, no, no. It's just meant to be it just, startling. It or rolls scary. in and it kind of snaps its jaws a little bit, and the rats perceive it as a predator. Okay. But yeah, it doesn't chase the rats around and try to eat them. It doesn't cut them in half. No, no, nothing. Like that. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, and one other area I, I want to touch on is the prefrontal cortex. And, this, and the reason I want to talk about this is start to introduce this concept of areas of the brain interacting. Um, and this is really a. a systems neuroscience kind of problems, several 
um, areas of the brain change activity. So the prefrontal cortex has been shown to have a lot of influence on emotional regulation and cognition. And the prefrontal cortex kind of directly inhibits some of these areas that are active during stress and emotion, which leads us to, when, when there's a lot of activity in the prefrontal cortex, sort of directs us to that flexible, more inf- memory gathering or memory retrieving state. So mm. we think about things more. Mm-hmm. And interesting, you know, down to stressful conditions, there's a good amount of evidence out there showing that the prefrontal cortex is less active. And then when individuals begin to recover from anxiety disorders, we start to see this activity coming back and the prefrontal cortex begins to sort of inhibit these very emotional areas of the brain that are responsible for these strong emotions. Hmm. Interesting. So to kind of apply some of some of these ideas to, you know, not only writer's block, but also to the imposter syndrome. So you think the anxiety that writers may be feeling, for instance, I'm thinking of like when you're staring at a, a blank screen, and I've talked with a lot of writers about this, when you're starting a big project and maybe you're forcing yourself to get some words down, but you don't really know, or you haven't, you haven't fully maybe thought about or processed where you want to start, why it's so hard to just start. Right. Um, so where maybe the anxiety comes from when you're staring at a blank page and you haven't maybe broken it down into, I don't know, just say an outline or, right. you know, you have an idea of that first sentence. Interesting aside, I think, you know, Stephen King has talked specifically about that first sentence and why it takes him so long and sometimes weeks or months to come up with it. But once he has it, it's like everything else kind of falls in place. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Stephen King does not have imposter syndrome, but maybe, but maybe we could ask him. Uh, Maybe maybe he does a bit. Maybe, and you know, these are hard things is again is, you know, some anxiety is good. Some anxiety drives us to, to do good work, thorough work. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us for a glimpse into the workings of the writer's brain. For more episodes of The Writer Files, or to simply leave us a comment or a question, drop by writerfiles.fm. You can always chat with me on Twitter, at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.